0: from Acts chapter 18 and then we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians.
1: After this Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned with the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city." So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While, while Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man they charged is persuading the people for worship, to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on. Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court but Galileo showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for, the same, for some time, then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off in Kenchura, Kenchuria because of the vow he had taken. Is that right? Okay. Okay. Well, now we move on to page 806. Corinthians one one Corinthians one. Okay. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes To the Church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord and the Lord and ours grace and peace to you from God our father and the Lord Jesus Christ i always thank god for you because of his grace even you in christ jesus for in him you have been enriched in every way in all your speaking and all your in all your knowledge because our testimony about christ was confirmed in you Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of, G- of Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful.
0: All right, well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that you speak to us so clearly through the scriptures. And we thank you you that the scriptures actually speak to us in terms of who we are as people in Christ. And Lord, as we consider your word now, we pray that you'd help us to focus and, Father, that you'd help us to change our thinking and change our uh, pattern of behaviour as well so that we would be uh, more the kind of people that you would have us be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen here's a question which you've probably heard from time to time. And uh, the question is, if you were to somehow find the perfect church, what's the one one thing that you must never do? Any ideas? Join Join it. That's right. Uh, If you find the perfect church, whatever you do, please do not join it. And the reason I say that is because... uh, Believe it or not, you're not perfect. And if you, an imperfect person, join the perfect church, then what does that do to the perfect church? It's no longer perfect. Of course, you'll never find a perfect church. Uh, There is no such thing as the perfect church this side of heaven. Uh, Churches always have problems. Every church has problems. Uh, What are the main kinds of problems that we find in churches? Well, someone said this, and I think it uh, isn't far off the mark, that um, the three issues which cause most harm in churches are divisiveness, immorality, and false teaching. Divisiveness, immorality, and false teaching. Now, of course, uh, there's more problems than simply those, isn't there? In fact, you could say that there is <clears throat> that there is many kinds of problems that you'll find in churches because there's many different kinds of people that you'll find in churches. And when it all boils down, <clears throat> the problems in churches, the real problems, are people problems. Uh, because we're all still sinful. Uh, even though we may be changing, even though we might be growing. In our godliness the reality is that for every one of us we are still a work in progress now the question then is what should be our attitude towards problems in the church Uh, there are different alternatives Uh, for example we can ignore the problems in the church we can brush them under the carpet pretend that they don't exist Uh, we can run away from problems in the church and flee them or is there a better way Sometimes people say, you know, if only we could get back to the, to the New Testament church, to what the churches were like in the New Testament, wouldn't that be marvellous? Wouldn't that be great? Well, friends, in the New Testament, <clears throat> have you looked at some of the churches? <clears throat> the churches in the New Testament were absolutely riddled with problems. <clears throat> Just like the church in Corinth. Uh, in fact, the the church in Corinth is a wonderful example of a church that wasn't perfect. In the church in Corinth, there was division. Uh, I'm not just talking about the fact they had two services. <laughs> That's not division. I'm talking about real relationship divisions between people. Um, there was Christian hero worship going on. People actually identifying themselves with a Christian leader rather than with God alone. Uh, there was sexual immorality going on in the Corinthian church. There were members of the church who were taking other members of the church to court, presumably over business matters. Um, <clears throat> there were some people in the church who thought that they were better than everybody else, and they looked down their nose other members of the congregation and to cap it all off there was false teaching uh, there was uh, very real questions being raised over whether there was such a thing as life after death um, whether or not there was a resurrection whether or not Jesus was in fact resurrected from the dead whether or not we're still in our sins now do you want to get back to the New Testament Church and be like that? Well, um, throughout this year, what, what I'm planning to do is to uh, take a, a number of chunks of 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. and, and have a look at it. A different. We're not going to do all of 1 Corinthians all in one hit, but at different times during the year, we'll come back to 1 Corinthians and we'll have a look at uh, a particular church there. And as we do so, we're not only going to... We'll certainly be exploring the kinds of issues that were causing problems in Corinth. Um, But it also means that uh, we're going to be exploring what it means for us to be a church, what it means for us to be committed to one another. So first of all, let's look at some background uh, issues. Because I'm not sure whether anyone here has actually ever been to Corinth. Uh, It's good to... uh, think about the question of where is Corinth um, what kind of a city uh, was it uh, how did the culture of the city uh, impact upon the work of gospel ministry in that uh, in that city uh, I've got a friend of mine who about a year or so ago with his wife went to Egypt for a conference when he came back from Egypt he thought of a question which he'd asked a few people and no one knew the right answer to and he thought he'd trick me on it as well. And uh, he said to me, all right, Scott, what is the chief source of income for the nation of Egypt? I wonder what you think it might be. Pyramid tourism, perhaps? Well, it's um, it's actually got to do with shipping. Um, You see, you've got 18,000 ships a year, uh, all preferring not to have to sail right around Africa. (laughs) And uh, so they take the shortcut through the Suez Canal and they pay Egypt, uh, Egypt's government for the privilege of doing so. And I understand if you do that shortcut through the Suez Canal, it can sometimes be bumper-to-bumper ships. They process about 50 ships per day. Uh, in the ancient world, that was one of the ways that the city of Corinth grew rich. I've got a map of uh, Corinth for you there, on, on, on the screen. And uh, if you, um, can you see where it is? Can everyone see that little red red uh, dot there? It may not be big enough for people up at the back. But that's the city, that's where Corinth is. Can you see that there's a very thin strip of land? Um, uh, between the mainland there and what you call the, the Peloponnesian Peninsula, very thin strip of land, and Corinth is inland from that st- in, the, in that strip of land, but on either side of it, it's got these two uh, beautiful harbors, and uh, each of them has a has a port. Uh, it's very strategically located. Uh, on a a very major shipping route. So that um, trade between Rome, uh, here in the West, uh, right through to this part of, uh, I guess that's um, Greece, uh, the Aegean Sea, uh, the Asia Minor, uh, right through to the Middle East, uh, um, Judea, Palestine, and... um, the other nations there, Syria and also here you've got North Africa, Egypt and North Africa. And uh, so there's a lot of shipping that passes through the Mediterranean. One of the problems is that the Peloponnesian Peninsula there is a very, very rugged coastline and they, they, there's been a lot of cargo, a lot of ships, a lot of lives lost. By sailing around that particular coastline, and uh, so the the shipping people could save themselves that kind of treacherous uh, coastline and the potential for losing ships there, and they could also save themselves about 350 kilometres worth of of sailing if they could take a shortcut through these through Corinth. Um, dock at this harbour here, if they're heading west, and then take off again from that harbour there, and vice versa. Uh, If you go there today, you'll find that there is a canal which was dug in the latter part of the 19th century by French engineers so that ships can simply just sail through it. In the first century, however, what they did was they um, they, they took these ships that were really small ships and they put them onto a platform, the whole ship was put onto a platform that had wheels, and they wheeled it across. Uh, you're only talking very thin strip of land there, it's only a few kilometres at its narrowest point. And Corinth grew rich because of this. Uh, the, the money that they were able to charge the, uh, the shipping merchants for uh, harbouring their ships in the harbours and for transporting them across uh, that uh, thin strip of land. Uh, not only that, but uh, Corinth was the uh, a rural, centre, r- rural service centre for a big agricultural uh, region. And they also had a thing called the Isthmus Games. I don't know how you pronounce that correctly, but the, the Isthmus Games. Uh, which were uh, hosted just near Corinth, uh, I think on an annual basis, which was second only to the Olympic Games uh, in the ancient world. And so uh, it was a very significant centre. It was a major port city. And you can imagine what sort of people would live there. Uh, People came from all of the countries that shared a border with the Mediterranean Sea. Um, There were Romans, uh, Africans, people from Asia Minor. There were Jews, there were Arabs. Uh, It was a cosmopolitan melting pot of peoples and cultures and so on. Uh, People came to Corinth to get rich, to do business. Now, of course, in any city with lots of sailors, uh, there is another kind of business which tends to thrive, isn't there? Um, the oldest kind of business. In fact, the Greeks had a word <coughs> uh, which w- w- which means an immoral lifestyle, and the word was Corinthiadsusthy, Corinthiadsusthy, which means to live a Corinthian lifestyle. It was not a compliment. Corinth had a reputation for immorality. It it was also a place for idolatry. Uh, There were altars, shrines, and temples to many of the false uh, false gods of Greece, Rome, and Egypt in Corinth. And indeed, immorality Immorality and idolatry uh, joined forces in the worship of the, Greeks, the Greek sex goddess Apaphroditus. Um, sorry, a- Aphroditus. Uh, that's where we get the word um, Aphrodisiac from. Uh, it comes from this Greek goddess and her temple was located in Corinth. Now, that's a picture of Corinth. But in the midst of all of that greed, lust and idolatry, there was a church, a small community of men and women who believed in and who trusted in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The first person to preach the gospel in Corinth, as we read earlier on from Acts chapter 18, was Paul. Uh, Paul was on his uh, second missionary journey Um, When he arrived in Corinth, he went, first of all, to the synagogue uh, because there was a community of Jews living in Corinth. And he uh, reasoned with these Jews from the scriptures uh, trying to prove to them that Jesus is the Christ. In Acts 18, we read that uh, many of those Jews rejected that message. They rejected Jesus. They rejected Paul, and so Paul discontinued preaching in the synagogue. <laughs> he went next door, perhaps not all that diplomatically, but he went next door to the house of uh, another, to a house of a person, I think called Crispus, and he preached the gospel to anybody, anyone who would want to come and hear, whether they were Jews, whether they were Romans or people from Turkey or Egyptians or. Arabs, Greeks, whoever wanted to hear about Jesus, Paul was willing to tell them about Jesus. And many Corinthians, we're told in Acts 18, believed and became Christians, including, I might add, some of the leaders of the synagogue. Now, Paul stayed in Corinth for one and a half years. Um, He's a church planter. He doesn't stay long in a church, he plants a church, and he moves on. But he stayed in Corinth for one and a half years because as a seaport, Corinth was not only strategic commercially, it was also strategic for the sake of the gospel. Because Corinth was a place where people came and people went. And uh, you know, if you reach a sailor, if you reach a merchant with the gospel that as they leave Corinth, that they would be able to take the gospel to all over the world of the Mediterranean. The gospel would radiate from Corinth to many other places. Now, the letter of 1 Corinthians was written a number of years after Paul had left Corinth. Uh, In chapter 16, verse 8, Paul wrote that he, uh, he tells us that Paul actually wrote the letter when he was based in Ephesus. And apparently there had been some letters that had gone backwards and forwards from Paul and the Corinthians. Uh, so, letters. There's at least one letter that Paul wrote that no longer exists, that we don't have any copy of. It's not in the New Testament. But in this particular letter I want us to look at, 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses some of the problems that have been raised with him. Some of the problems of the church. So how about we open up our Bibles now at the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read to you the first three verses. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul starts by telling them who the letter has come from. That's helpful, isn't it? <clears throat> it's a, better than in our culture where we wait until the very end of the letter till we sign it. So if you want to know who the letter's come from, you've got to look at the back of the envelope or zip right down to the end where you see who the letter has come from. Uh, Paul, following first century culture, states that right from the very outset. And he describes himself as being an apostle. Now, an apostle means simply... A sent one, somebody who's been sent with a message. God had sent Paul into the world of the Gentiles to proclaim the message of Jesus. But the letter, we're told, also comes from a man named Sosthenes. But we don't know a great deal about Sosthenes, except that uh, when Paul first preached the gospel in Corinth, back in Acts chapter 18, there was a Jewish man, we're told, by the name of of Sosthenes. In fact, he was one of the rulers of the synagogue. When they persecuted Paul and took him up before the authorities in Acts chapter 18, the Jews beat up Sosthenes. So apparently Sosthenes was supporting Paul. Well, here we can see that Sosthenes, if it's the same man, presumably the same man, is now a Christian and that as he's, he's stood the test of time, he's persevered and in fact he's with Paul in Ephesus doing ministry. So that's how Paul describes himself. How does he describe the Corinthians? Now, firstly, let's bear in mind that Paul knows better than anyone else The problems in the church in Corinth. He knows that there's division. He knows that there's sexual immorality. He knows that there's people taking other people to court. He knows that there's false teaching. Uh, He knows that there's one upmanship going on. He knows all of that, but yet he describes them firstly as being the church of God. Now, the word church means a community of people who regularly gather together. Well, this community of people who gathers together gathers together because they are of God. Despite all of their problems, despite all of their sinfulness, they are of God, a church of God. Secondly, he, call, he describes them as being sanctified In Christ Jesus you see that in verse 2 sanctified in Christ Jesus what does it mean to be sanctified well it's the same word from which we get the word saint sanctified is the verb saint is the noun he's calling them saints there's been a bit of talk in recent times about a particular person probably becoming a saint in the near future, right? And uh, people are celebrating that and uh, honouring her, etc. As if there are two categories of Christians. As if there's a a category of, of very, very special Christians who are put into a very, very special category called saints who have to perform miracles and it has to be endorsed by people in Rome and so on. Well, friends, in the Bible... All Christians are saints. Because it means to be set apart from the rest of the world. It means to be set apart by God and for God. And here we see that these Corinthians have been set apart by God because they are, what does it say? They are in Christ Jesus if you have a relationship with Christ Jesus, if you trust in Christ Jesus, then you are sanctified. You are a saint. That is their status before God. Which means that thirdly, Paul says that they are called to be holy. And the word holy has the same root word as the word saint and the word sanctified. You know, it's because being set apart, being sanctified, being a saint, it's not just a status it's also a process. It's a process of change. It's a process of becoming more the people that God would have you be. And so these Christians are to live very differently to other Corinthians. They are to put put away sin in their lives. And it's not just them by the way. Because in verse 2, it says that all Christians everywhere are included. Can you see that? In verse 2, he says, Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now, I don't think that that means that this letter was a letter that was going out to all the other Christians in the area. That's certainly the case with some of the other letters in the New Testament. Um, But this is so specific for the Corinthians but I suggest that what it's saying is that all Christians, every Christian, is someone who uh, is sanctified, and someone who is set apart, someone who is to live differently. And so that means that this is of great relevance to you and me, to us here today. Now, think about this. <clears throat> We are being told that we are to be different to other people. How are we to be different? <clears throat> well, it's not got to do with you know wearing crosses around our neck. That's fine if you want to do that. Or having fish stickers on your car. That's fine to do that if you want to do that as well. Uh, it's got to do with how we live. It's got to do with the fact that non-Christian people who know us should be able to come to some conclusions about you and me and, and, and to conclude that that person is actually a bit different to others. Not because they're strange, or in terms of having unusual personalities, or you might have an unusual... God calls all sorts of kinds of people, but we should be different because they should be look, able to look at us and say, well, that person's not someone who's all caught up in materialism, or selfishness, or immorality. Um, That's the person who at work doesn't get involved in running down other people and gossip and slander when that's going on in the morning tea room and that sort of thing. In fact, it's the kind of person who can be identified as being wise and even trustworthy. We are to be different. Now, in a place like Corinth, Uh, with its greed, with its idolatry, with its immorality, uh, people who were different to that would stand out, quite markedly so. Now here's the problem. The problem was that the church might have been planted in Corinth, but there's still a lot of of Corinth planted in the church. Um, And so what was Paul's attitude towards these Christians? Uh, he knows about all of their difficulties. He struggles with them. They, he probably would have spent a lot of time in prayer and lost sleep because of these Corinthian Christians. But how does he respond to What's his attitude? Does he, does he condemn them? Does he reject them? Does he you know, wipe his hands at them? Well, no. If you have a look at verse 4, what is Paul's attitude towards them? In verse 4, he is thankful. He says, I always thank God for you. He always thanks God for them. How can he do that? I mean, he knows that this church is so far from perfect. They would have caused him such great anguish at times. How can he, well, you know I mean? He might have been justified in complaining to God about them but he's thankful to God for them because God has been gracious to them. In verses 5 and 6, he says that in Christ, they have been enriched in every way because the testimony about Christ was confirmed in them. Paul's testimony about Christ uh, was that, that he took to the synagogue and he tried to persuade the the people in the synagogue about was not confirmed in many of them but it was in these people now think about it Paul knew some of these people before they became Christians you know when he preached the gospel at Corinth and he went to the synagogue there would have been plenty of moral, upright religious people who just rejected Jesus who discarded the message and rejected Paul but these were the the people who actually believed and trusted in Jesus. There is a huge difference there isn't there? It's the difference between black and white, it's the difference between light and dark. Now of course some of them had a very long way to go in terms of holiness but the question is have they made progress? what direction are they heading in in their lives and you can you can you can tell if a person's made progress as a christian if you know something about what they were like before they were a christian right well what were these people like before they became christians what was their starting point their starting point friends was corinth turn with me over page to chapter 6 <clears throat> chapter 6 verse 9 Let me read to you a couple of verses here. Paul says to them, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were but you were washed. In the original it says, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Imagine that. What were these people like before they became Christians? Well, we're told here that some of them were sexually immoral and idolaters. There were adulterers amongst them. There were male prostitutes. There were homosexual offenders. Some of them were thieves. Some of them were greedy, some of them were drunkards, alcoholics, some of them were slanderers, some of them were swindlers, they ripped people off. This is what some of you were. But for what God has done in. Can you see why Paul's thankful? Can you see why these people are people who he absolutely treasures? Because the gospel has profoundly impacted their lives. Jesus, you know who he came to save? He came to save sinners, people who are not perfect. Now, would you, what would you expect from a church in Corinth? Would you expect a church that has been called together by God from people who were, what's the word, Corinthia, living a Corinthian lifestyle? Would you expect it to be a church that was free of any difficulties? problems of course not what paul is saying here is that is what you were i thank god for the power of the gospel that has saved you but you can't stay like that Uh, you got to move forward you got to change you got to put put away sin and i want to help you to do that that's why i'm writing you this letter That's why Paul wrote to them. He wants to challenge them to not stay stagnant, to press on, to keep changing. But he wants them not to lose confidence either. He wants to assure them that as they commit themselves to change that they're not alone in doing that. Come with me back to chapter 1, verse 8. In chapter 1, verse 8, Paul reminds them of the great promise of God where he says to them that God will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. How about that, eh? That in their... Sanctification in their process of moving forward and changing and doing away with sin in their life and becoming more the people that God would have, that God is right there with them, being faithful, helping them to do so. In fact, without Him, without His Spirit, it would be impossible. Now, I want us to just think briefly about how this might therefore help us. Um, as we work our way through 1 Corinthians, uh, we, we really are going to cover a lot of territory, uh, which, territory which has got very real practical implications for us as individuals and corporately as a church. Because, friends, some of the sinful behaviour in the Corinthian church uh, has been sinful behaviour in this church amongst us in the past and it will also be the case in the future as well I guarantee it there's only only two ways uh, that uh, we can guarantee that there will be no problems in our church in the future or two things that we can do to make sure that that happens one is become perfect now which you can't do this side of heaven and even if you could the second thing you do is close the doors and stop reaching out to non-Christians with the gospel. Don't welcome any newcomers into the church. Do we want to do that? No, of course not. Of course not. These problems will be, will be problems for us in the future and I've got no doubt uh, to some extent are problems for us in the present. 1 Corinthians will help us to know how to avoid areas of sin and how to deal with them when they do occur in our church. And as we consider that there's a far better chance that we will become more the people that God wants us to be living here in Port Macquarie in in our culture, in our town with its own particular issues and difficulties. But finally, as we learn about the church in Corinth, we should be challenged by Paul's attitude towards the Christians there. As I said, there is no such thing as the perfect church. And uh, you know, here's a question. How do you respond when others in the church are not perfect? You know, for example, when somebody has wronged you because they're not perfect, how do you respond to that? Or when someone is behaving sinfully and you, because they're not perfect and you can see that, how, how do you respond to that? Or, or when you know someone is just not as committed as you think you are and you think they should be because they're not perfect. How do you respond to that? How do you deal with those things? Well, there's probably multiple ways. One way, of course, is, is to criticise people, to become angry, to ignore the person even to leave the church and all of that of course what does that do? well that just makes the problem bigger in fact it adds another problem to the life of the church but in Paul's example we see a far better option and it's the option of thanking God for each other Yeah, how often do we think of doing that? You know, when there's a person in the church who kind of grates you and you actually pray and actually thank God for them? Do you consider where where they used to be before they became a Christian, where they are now? Do you think about all of the good things that God is doing through that person and really thank him for that person, thank him for those people, thank him for the church? We'll learn to be thankful as we look at Paul's example. And the second thing, of course, is that Paul's option is the option of being committed to each other. Committed to uh, helping each other to, to grow, to learn more about God, to think about areas in our life that are not perfect. And in love, in graciousness, to actually be encouraging and helping each other to keep on putting aside sin and dealing with issues and growing as Christians and becoming more the people that God wants us to be here in Port Macquarie. I'm looking forward to getting into 1 Corinthians and uh, I trust that uh, you'll benefit from that as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your great gospel that calls people many people, different kinds of people, uh, into relationship with yourself through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the Corinthian church, that as messy as it was, Lord God, that there was a group of people who had uh, mm, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, were a light to the gospel uh, in that putrid place but with difficulties and we thank you father god for our church we thank you for each other we thank you that you've drawn us out of darkness and the futility of living a life without you and brought us into your kingdom we pray father god as we consider The church in Corinth and consider Paul's ministry to them that uh, we would in fact grow in gratitude for each other father that we would be working together to uh, become holy people sanctified people who honor you uh, not only with our words but also with our actions and our motivations and we pray these things now in Jesus name Amen